A reading from the book of the prophet Isaiah, chapter 9, starting with verse 1. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoiced before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A reading from the first letter of the Corinthians, chapter 1, starting with verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius. So none of you can say that you were baptized in my name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Gospel according to St. Matthew, chapter 4, starting with verse 12. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah, land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadows of death, a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, called Peter, and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, Follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. 
the gospel of the Lord. We are in the season of Epiphany, that season that of surprise, of upending, of transforming. If this is new to you, this season follows soon after or right after the season of Christmas. And it's this reminder that God who stepped into our world in a, the form of a little child, the incarnation, this reality of God with us is not just for a few people, but it's for everybody. It's for the whole world. So all of our readings over these weeks are this expanding, this light going out. And in every one of our readings, there's this element of surprise <laughs> that, okay, I didn't think things were like that, that we'd been upended, we'd been overturned. We've heard of the story of the Magi drawn by the stars that led them to Jesus. We heard of Jesus's baptism, what that says about him, and also what it says about those of us who are in him, of who we are. And then we heard Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Today, we see how this light, this going out, this upending, this surprise, how it speaks to the kind of discipleship to which we're called. What does it mean to follow Jesus? Jesus, today there's three things. I'm going to be a classic preacher this morning and have three points. Okay, There's three things I want us to see. Jesus breaks oppression. Jesus mends factions, and Jesus plucks out of chaos, all right? The prophet Isaiah speaks of a light that's come in the darkness, and this light is so dramatic that we now have to speak about a former time before the light and a latter time after the light. It's such a big deal. So it says, Israel's previously been in a land of distress. They've been in exile. And verse 2 stirs the soul. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who lived in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shined. So Israel has experienced times of deep darkness, times when they wondered, has God given up on us? Many of us have experienced those kinds of times in our lives. The loss of a loved one, of a relationship, the feeling of despair that comes upon us in times of pain. We experience and we hear when we read this, these words, that time of deep darkness. I wonder what that deep darkness time was for you. When we read the prophets, prophetic literature is meant to be read in layers, so it often has more than one meaning. One good example of this is Dr. Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech. And if you're familiar at all with the speech, you're probably familiar with the more kind of soaring rhetoric part of the speech, like the language that's so beautiful about his dream. And he paints the picture of sons of the former slaves and sons of the former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. And he talks about um, hew out the mountain of despair, a stone of hope, and this beautiful, beautiful language. Well, a lot of that language came at a certain portion of his speech. So he was outlining a bunch of very very practical things for the crowd, legislation, things that needed to happen in their communities. And then Mahalia Jackson, the singer, yells from the crowd, tell them about the dream, Martin. And that's when he goes into this kind of language, tell them about the dream, Martin. But the whole speech, if you listen to the whole speech, it's very specific. It's talking about issues in the segregated South. It's talking about civil rights. 
talking about legislation. And if we take the speech only out of the context and we act like it's kind of a speech that just floats in the clouds without any specific context, we've lost some of its meaning. The speech has layers. It has layers that speak to equality at all times, but it also has specificity to it. This is true of the Old Testament prophets as well. They have to be read in layers. Both the specific themes and the broader themes are true. So in the original context, the prophet is speaking of judgment on Israel's current king, Ahaz, and then speaking of the promise of a new king, which we think is Hezekiah. But in the midst of all of this, it's saying, hey, your king Ahaz has embodied really bad leadership, (laughs) and there's a new king who's coming. There's a new day that's dawning, and yet that is a message of hope. There's a new day that's dawning because God will not give up on his people. You have the worst possible king who embodies the worst kind of leadership, and yet I'm bringing hope to you. There's a new day that's coming. Then where there is light, and it speaks of this light, there is joy. There's a couple different kinds of joy. We talked a little bit about this at Christmas Eve, but there's a couple different types of joy here present. The first is the joy of the harvest. Like when you're a farmer and there's a harvest, there's anxiety. Will the harvest come? Like, will it yield the crops that it needs to yield this year? Or will we have a famine? There's always a certain level of trust. I've never been a farmer, but there's a certain level of trust in farming that goes I'm trusting that if I plant this kind of seed and, I, um, and I, I see this through, that it's going to yield a certain kind of crop. But there's a little bit of anxiety, more than a little bit of anxiety. The second is the joy of warriors dividing their plunder. So this is when you have something you didn't have before. You've come upon something and you rejoice over it. Those are the joy that's present in the light. Well, as Christians, we see another layer to this story. Jesus is the great light to Israel, and then to the whole world. In fact, darkness is really just the absence of light. And there seems to be a correlation in the prophets between the depths of the darkness that's experienced and the light that shines. The good news continues with verse 4. For the yoke of their burden and the bar across their shoulders, the rod of the oppressor you have broken. Both yoke and rod speak of oppression. Isaiah is perhaps referencing the oppression of the Assyrians, but on a deeper level of all oppression. So what does it mean that God is the one who breaks the rod of the oppressor? I think there's a few things that come to mind at the same time. First of all, this refers to the realities of political oppression. The world as we know it today is largely unjust. The question of where to place blame for that injustice is complicated, and it's multi-layered. So depending on who you talk to, they're likely to place blame at the feet of some particular group or tribe or whatever. So do we blame the government for this injustice? If so, is it just the current administration, or is it the system of American government itself, or is it all government? Do we blame major corporations? They do shady things, right? If so, is it simply the acts of those corporations as they stand now, or is it capitalism itself, or or what? Do we blame the police and the justice system? Do we blame Hollywood and the entertainment industry? Do we blame millennials? Do we blame boomers? Casting blame is messy because sin is messy. 
And the truth is that the darkness of sin has so pervaded our world, it's often difficult to identify where it is most concentrated. The way of light, the way of Jesus, the way of the kingdom shatters oppression in all of its forms. When light comes, it shatters the oppression that the addict has to his drug of choice. It shatters the oppression to all of our sin and the results of sin. It shatters the oppression of those who have been held down by society because of their race or color or creed. This new kingdom brings light and joy and broken yokes. And that all sounds great. It sounds good, right? It's good news. But it doesn't often sound like what we experience. To proclaim the good news of Jesus is to say boldly, audaciously, in a way that seems countercultural, that the broken systems we live in don't have the final word. They don't have the final say. They're not all that there is, and so we shouldn't be satisfied with them as they are. This is good news to all who are oppressed, that God's light has dawned. At the beginning of the reading, it says the good news is for Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Now, those were towns that were among the most vulnerable because they lived on the edges of the empire. They were the closest to the areas that would be attacked. So the good news is even you who are far away, this is good news to you. Those of you who feel like you're on the edge and you could be attacked at any second, this is good news for you. And we might ask ourselves, who are those on the margins in our world? Who are those who live in the deepest darkness? This is the best news for them. And we also ought to admit that many of us do not live there. That's not our situation. In an absence of such an experience, sometimes what happens is we turn this into a moralizing message or an evangelistic message only. So we hear, okay, this is good news for them, for all those people who are on the margins, and we are sent to go proclaim it to them, which is true on some level. But we have to first remember that it is God who's the burden reliever. God is the light bringer, not us. And our job is not to snatch that mantle away from him. Now, this is incredibly tricky. So I'm not saying this, and this is what some Christians say. I'm not saying this. I'm not saying that it's really all about preaching the gospel. It's not about serving people's tangible, real needs. No, Christians are called to be part of the relieving of real, tangible burdens in this life. Leslie Newbigin, Bishop of India, once wrote, it is a terrible misunderstanding of the gospel to think it offers us salvation while relieving us of responsibility for the life of the world, for the sin and sorrow and pain with which our human life and that of our fellow men and women are so deeply interwoven. So we are to be part of that. But there's also a counter danger. Many of us have been taught that we are the superheroes. <laughs> We're the ones called to fix things, that it's up to us to make things right. So we take on that burden ourselves, and often we make ourselves and our work an idol. Many of you are in what we would call helping professions. And we have uh, medical professionals in our church, therapists, school teachers, spiritual directors, chaplains. And many of you face challenges because you entered a broken, you entered the profession because you want to help. That was the point. And then what happens is often helpers get in a situation where they're faced with bureaucracy, with broken systems that seem to make no sense, 
and then with people who you're trying to serve who don't actually want your help. The tendency can be to do one of two things. First of all, give up and get cynical. We know a lot of people in helping professions that that's what ends up happening. Happening is it's just, I can't ever make a difference, so I'm just cynical. It's paycheck for me. Or we think the work is up to me to fix it, that I'm the hero. And in many ways, my generation, I'll speak for my generation, has been taught the latter, <laughs> but then we fall to the former. <laughs> so we come into the system trying to fix it, try to make it all better, and then we go, oh, this system's not going to change. Okay, throw out my hands. But if Christianity becomes only about the good that we can do, we've missed something. If it's just about a group of people getting together, inspired by Jesus' example, to pull ourselves up by our own moral bootstraps, we don't understand the gospel. And there will always be a ceiling to our ability to fix the burdens of others. Christianity is not, I alone can fix it. It's not even, we can fix it. The good news is there is one who can and has. But his kingdom today appears hidden. It manifests itself in everyday, humble actions of faith, hope, and love. And we're not motivated. Often what a lot of the key here is just motivation. We're not motivated out of pride, I can fix it, or guilt, oh, I better do this. But as participation in the life of the triune God of grace. So some of us today need to hear that the yoke of oppression we've placed on ourselves is broken. God is the burden breaker. And we can only understand liberation for others when we understand it for ourselves. Okay, so Jesus breaks oppression. That's the first thing. But he also mends factions. These two things in our world seem often contradictory. <laughs> Okay, does, is he the one that calls out justice and breaks oppression, or is he the one that brings people together and unifies? Those seem like contradictory things, but they actually, in the scriptures, they go together. So Paul begins to address some divisions in the church. There were all these different factions in the church, and he says there were quarrels among you. We might even call these proto-denominations within the church. And unfortunately, we know this kind of division all too well today. Our church is, the church worldwide is extremely divided. But Paul's prayer is that they would be perfectly united. The word united here carries the idea of restoring or mending something that has fallen into disrepair. The same verb is actually used in our gospel reading when the disciples are mending their nets, which I think is so cool. It's this idea of fixing something that's been broken. And Paul has heard that they're not united, which, side note, is kind of cool. He says, Chloe's people have told me. <laughs> we don't know exactly who that was, but she and her whole household, she may have been a person of influence, and she had a whole kind of group of people, but they said that you guys have been uh, divisive. Um, and the primary division stems from who to follow. So it sounds like some in the Corinthian church are claiming they're more special because of the specific leader who baptized them. So in the midst of such squabbling, I love this, Paul gives this informal, two-human response. I couldn't help but chuckle when, we, when McKenna was reading it earlier because he basically says, I thank God I've only baptized two of y'all, so I can't even be involved in this conversation. And he points them out. He said, I baptized Crispus. I baptized Gaius. You see, this is a really personal letter. I baptized two of you. And then he keeps talking, and then he goes, oh, yeah, and, and I baptized the household of Stephanus, but I can't remember if I baptized anybody else. <laughs> Love that. 
So within the church, some are saying, I'm of Cephas. I'm part of the Cephas group or the Peter group. And some are saying, I'm, I'm part of Apollos, or I'm from Apollos. Apollos, we think, may have been a really skilled preacher. And Paul gave birth to the community at Corinth, but Apollos may have gained some traction and some influence with him there. Um, and then there's another group that just says, I'm of Christ, which is the right Sunday school answer, right? Like, okay, what group are you part of? Well, I'm part of the Jesus group, um, it's always safe to do that. But many scholars think this Jesus group was claiming a kind of exclusivity. They're saying, we're the only ones who are really of Jesus. So the Corinthians, it seems like, want leaders with strong speaking abilities, those with charisma who would attract attention and respect. And they found Paul to be disappointing. But Paul says the kind of wisdom which comes from God is hidden. It will never look like that of the world. He was not sent to be the guy who everybody said, Paul baptized me. People were not supposed to be able to say, I'm of Paul. Paul says here, I'm a preacher, but I'm not all that eloquent in my preaching. It's not about me. In fact, if, if I was so eloquent that it was all about me, Paul says, I'd be robbing the cross of its power. Because this whole thing is about Jesus and the reality of Christ crucified. Now, I don't think we can be over-reminded as Christians that the cross is foolishness to the world. Christians believe that victory has somehow come through defeat, that the world has been saved through death, an embarrassing death, death on a cross, and that's foolishness to the world. It's a foolish thing that binds us together. So our diversity within the body of Christ is a strength because somehow all these people who make up the church, I'm not just talking about sacrament church, but the church worldwide, somehow all of us are so radically different. We have different views on all different kinds of things, and yet we're bound together in Christ. According to the standards of our world, though, we all need to kind of be the same. Hegemony, agreement, commonality, that's the way to go. And the goal of this life is to convince other people of your perspective. All of these people who are so radically different are bound together in Christ. This is also how corporations tend to work, this hegemony that I'm talking about. What, what seems valued in kind of the leadership world and the uh, corporate world is a leader casts a compelling vision. You're not supposed to question it. You're not supposed to give any impression of weakness behind that vision. And that's really the way to get everybody in line. But in Christianity, the only agreement is the cross and its foolishness to the world. We can disagree on everything else, but the cross is what's central to our faith. Now, that doesn't mean we shouldn't have really strong debates and conversation within the family of God. That doesn't mean that, that anything else other than I'm of Jesus and I'm of the cross is foolishness or, or is, is not good, is not valuable. No, we need to have those conversations, and it's really important. But the cross is central to our faith. We have a higher authority than our difference. And in the midst of our difference, Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. Somehow, out of this otherwise broken and divided muddle of people, God makes his people who shine his light in the world. So Jesus breaks oppression. Jesus mends factions. And then Jesus plucks out of chaos. Sometimes people need convincing before they follow Jesus. 
Other times, they just do it quickly. They don't need anything else. Simon, Andrew, James, and John apparently didn't need much encouragement. Jesus' voice was enough for them, and they would spend the rest of their lives learning what it means to answer this call. Matthew wants us to see that Jesus fulfills Isaiah 9. So he's heard that John's arrested. That's a period of great darkness. And then the light has come. Jesus has waited to preach, but now John has been arrested. He knows the time is, is right. He knows that the great, in the great darkness, light has come. And he says, repent, for the kingdom of God is near. He sees these fishermen and he says, follow me and I will make you fish for people. Now, this was a break in protocol. Because at this time, if you were a prospective disciple and you wanted to follow a rabbi, you would like get your resume all brushed up. You'd be like, I've done all these great things. I've memorized this much scripture and I'm ready. And you'd go to a disciple and say, I'm one of the, or a rabbi and say, I'm one of the best of the best. Choose me. Jesus reverses the pattern. He goes and he calls the disciples. And it's not because they're the best of the best. He simply calls them out of his own initiative and grace into a permanent relationship with himself. And then he calls them to fish for people. What the heck does that even mean? Fish for people. I have heard this preached so many different ways that are harmful and destructive as what it means to be fishers of people. Oftentimes it involves some sort of manipulation of your friends who aren't Christians. (laughs) A few years ago, we moved into a new house and the first person to stop by when we moved into our new house was a security system salesman. And he had had a report on our house. He was informed that we were moving in. And he said, I've been coming by every day to meet you. (laughs) This guy was fishing, okay? And immediately after approaching our door, he said, can I come inside? Like, okay, fine. And my parents were staying with us and he tried to charm them to try to get to sell his security system. And I think this is the kind of thing I was often taught Mean, is meant when we say fishing for people, <laughs> that we just kind of manipulate them and we sell them something and we get them to believe. In fact, when you fake your identity online, it's called catfishing, right? It's this reeling in that's trying to catch somebody. I've told you this story before, but my mom tells this awful story of when she first came to faith as a teenager. It was popular for the youth leaders to encourage the young girls to date guys who weren't yet Christians for the sole purpose of converting them to Christianity. (laughs) This was called Fisher evangelism at the time. So is Jesus, when he says you want to fish for people, is he saying we need to catch people in order to devour them, to lure them, to economically gain from them, to to dominate them, that can't be what Christian evangelism is about. This is where context is so important. In the ancient world, the seas, as I've said many times before, were a place of chaos and disorder. The seas were seen to be where evil inhabited. So in Genesis, it tells us God creates out of the seas or over the darkness, right? Revealing, and in that story, it reveals that he has supremacy over all the things that are scary and chaotic. In the book of Exodus, we see that Pharaoh's army is drowned in the Red Sea as God's people cross through it. This shows that God liberates through the chaos, through the seas. So when Jesus says to his disciples, they will fish for people, it's a rescue metaphor calling people out of the waters 
Even the way they fished was different from how we fish today. We think about putting bait at the end of a string, casting out a line and reeling something in, right? They had nets that they would just go to where the fish gathered and would gather them in. These men are people of the sea. They're fishermen. They're people of the chaos. That's why I think it's so critical. Um, This metaphor continues as Jesus chose fishermen, people of the chaos, people of the sea. They had accents that revealed they lived in fishing villages. They smelled like the sea, most likely. The scent of chaos followed them wherever they went, and Jesus has plucked them out of the chaos. The call of discipleship, the call of follow me, is the call of rescue. The people who are steeped in their chaos are being rescued. In the first century, to follow a rabbi meant to travel with them, to imitate their everyday life, and the goal was to imitate your rabbi. This great book by Anne Spangler, Lois Verberg, they say, the overall goal of discipleship is not simply to grow in self-discipline, but to be transformed into the likeness of Christ. And they continue, during the time of Jesus, one's rabbi was considered to be as dear as one's own father. And it was traditional for disciples to show the same reverence for their rabbi as their father or even more. It was said, and listen to this, your father brought you into this world, but your rabbi brings you into the life of the world to come. So Jesus is calling them into something new, a new world, a new way of being. Jesus sees the other two brothers. They respond immediately to his call. Something has moved in their hearts, has captured their attention. And it says that he called them, they were mending their nets. So up until now, they have mended their nets to catch fish. But as God establishes the church, those who follow Jesus will always be in the process of mending and being mended, of allowing God to weave us together, even as on our own we are broken and divided. Jesus invites us to trade our fishing and our mending for a life of a completely different kind of fishing and mending. So in response, they leave everything. There's something about this Jesus that is a game changer for them. It means leaving everything behind, their expectations, their striving, their inadequacies, their fear, their false narratives, everything. Gregory the Great writes this, the kingdom of heaven has no price tag on it. It is worth as much as you have. For Zacchaeus, it was worth half of what he owned because the other half uh, that he had unjustly pocketed, he promised to restore fourfold. For Peter and Andrew, it was worth the nets and the vessel they had left behind. For the widow, it was worth two copper coins. For another, it was worth a cup of cold water. So as we said, the kingdom of heaven is worth as much as you have. I wonder for each of us, we might ask, what what burdens are you bearing today? Maybe they're self-imposed burdens. They're burdens that have been put on you by, you feel, society or family members or whatever it is. The good news today is that they're broken. You don't need to be in control. That's a myth. You don't need to fix it. You don't need to be the perfect son, perfect daughter, perfect parent. You don't need those people to like you. 
Your value and worth is not dependent on how much worldly influence you have or fame you have. You have permission to lay down the burden of your expectations. And as we take a larger view, we might ask ourselves, where do we see oppression, these burdens, the strongest in our world? In the lives and family systems of the kids at school or at work? In broken systems, bureaucracies, in the news, in our families? And then there's the question of what do we do with that? Because the temptation is to just throw up our hands in cynicism, to think there isn't really anything to be done about the oppression we see. Alternatively, it's to carry the burden ourselves. The good news is that the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. The prayer for us today is that we know the one who breaks the rod of the oppressor and that we know the rod breaker is not me, it's not you. We are invited to participate in the work of liberation, not out of guilt, but out of a compel- the compelling and transforming grace of God. The good news today is that Jesus mends divisions. The kingdom of God is a mending kingdom. Why? Because it's built on foolishness, <laughs> to the world at least. This means it can't ever be built on pride. I can never say I have all the answers or that I'm more pure than you are. All I have to hold on is the cross. Paul says the ways of the cross are different from the ways of the world. The cross will always look like foolishness to those who are perishing, but for those who are being saved, it is the power of God. When Jesus calls a few unsuspecting fishermen and invites them to fish for people, he is inviting them into a whole new way of being in the world. He is calling his disciples in their rescue. It is their rescue, and it is the rescue of those who they encounter. So the final question is, where's the chaos in your life? Where's the chaos in the world? May we hear today that God is calling us into something new. He is rescuing us by stepping into the chaos and bringing about new creation. The yoke is broken. You are being mended, and so is the world. Creation is coming out of chaos. And this is good news. Amen.